Good morning, everyone. It is good to be back. As you know, a couple weeks ago, my wife and I flew out on Mother's Day to go back to the Hawaiian Islands to um, be, uh, to observe, I don't know how you say it, celebrate, observe my mother's memorial. Uh, so we were out there for the week, that entire week, and we flew back late last Sunday night, so it is good to be back with you all. And so as a result, you know, when a preacher doesn't preach for two weeks, the week that he's going to preach maybe go a little bit long. So just letting you know, all right. So if you have a Bible, turn open to Romans chapter 3. Uh, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, uh, it's going to be on page 885. Page 885 in one of our Pew Bibles. And we're going to pick it up in Romans chapter 3, verse 27. You know, if you uh, go to a jeweler to buy a diamond and, and you ask to see one of them, they will often bring the diamond out and lay it out on a deep black velvet cloth. Now, the reason they do this is because nothing shows the brilliance of a diamond quite like when it's contrasted against such a deep, dark, black velvet. In a similar manner, I, I think Paul's been doing the same kind of thing, especially as we've been studying since Romans chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Uh, Paul has been really showing us the blackness that exists in the human heart. When then when it's absolutely clear that there's nothing in our hearts that isn't covered by the darkness of sin, beginning with last week, Paul began to bring out the brilliance of the gospel message. And you were here, if you were here, Tim started talking about that pivot point where we went from Romans 1.18 through 3.20. I think we spent five or six weeks there. And then all of a sudden last week, the pivot on the brilliance of the gospel message. And if you were here, you recall, what did we learn after we realized the dire situation that human beings are in? What is our hope? And the hope that Paul presented was fantastic because humanity's hope wasn't in now try harder, now do these kinds of rituals and perform good deeds. No, not at all. It wasn't any of the things we typically associate with being a good person. In fact, the Bible made it very clear for five weeks that there is nothing within us that is good. And if we're going to be honest, we're very unwilling to be so. And so the good news of humanity, of the gospel, as Paul began to present last week, is God's grace alone in Christ alone through faith alone. And when we talk about God's grace, God's grace alone, that refers to the work of God on our behalf. And when we talk about in Christ alone, that talks about the person of God who brings about the work of God on our behalf. Grace alone, friends, refers to the absolutely unmerited favor of God. God's determining in his self-will to do us good. It is his unrelenting, unflinching, unwavering determination to love us and bless us. That's what we mean when we talk about grace alone. And when we talk about Christ alone, we're talking about the one whom secures God's grace on our behalf when nothing else and no one else could. Now, if you're paying attention, in, in God's grace alone and Christ alone, you and I have nothing to do with that. But that third element, God's grace alone, God's grace alone, through, uh, in Christ alone, through faith alone, that third element has everything to do with us. And that's what we're talking about this morning. The place of faith, its role and its application to us. 
So as this morning we continue to discuss the brilliant light of the gospel, we're going to learn three important things about faith in this passage, Romans 3.27 to the end of chapter 4, the primacy of faith, the centrality of faith, and the structure of faith. The primacy, centrality, and structure of faith. That's what we're going to look at. It's a bit of a long text. There's a lot here, but I'm going to zero in on that thread. So if you have God's Word open, would you stand with me as I read the Word of God? Starting in Romans chapter 3, verse 27, and I'm going to take it all the way through chapter 4. Paul writes this. What or, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, he will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Chapter 4, what then shall we say was granted or gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trust him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised 
That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Wow. There is a lot here, but what I want to focus in on are these three things, the primacy, the centrality, and the structure of faith. When we think about the primacy of faith, verse 28 in chapter 3 really is the key when Paul says, you and I are justified by faith. Faith being so primary in our relationship with God, notice in verse 27 that Paul actually calls it a law of faith. Friends, to be made right with God, to be in relationship with God, faith is the operative principle, not our good works. Now, you may be asking, well, why is that? Because so much of what people conceive of, of religion or Christianity is about being good and doing good works. But Paul says clearly that's not the case. And the reason is, as Paul very well knows, is that when we base our relationship with God upon our works... When we live our lives by works, it creates pride and division. You see that very. You see that in verse 27. Paul says, "What becomes of our boasting?" Because remember, part of Paul's audience were, were Jews, and they felt that they had the privilege because of their works and obedience to the law. You remember a few weeks ago we quoted uh, Romans chapter, excuse me, Deuteronomy chapter four, verses seven and eight. When they recognize how great is it that we have these laws and these rules from the Lord our, our God to us. Friends, the Ten Commandments to this day are an unparalleled way to structure society for thousands and thousands of years. And the Jews knew how amazing is it that we have these laws. And the Jews at that time took pride in their obedience to the moral law found in the Ten Commandments or their obedience to the, the, the ceremonial laws found in the sacrificial system. And they boasted of it and felt that that was what good, that gave them good standing before God. And Paul says that's not how it works. Last week he made it very clear that since God justifies us by grace, which we receive through faith, there's no room for bragging. There's no room for boasting. It's not about the law. Now, the question we have to ask then is, okay, what does it mean then to be justified by God? And this is very important. It means two radical things. Number one, it means to be declared righteous by God. And number two, it means, it's, it means to be made righteous by God. And this is really important. A couple of years ago, we did a survey asking people in our congregation, can you tell us the gospel? And by and large, most people understood the gospel, and, and I believe it was true, but when it came to really expressing it, they were incomplete. And this might be true of yourselves. Because when most people think about what the gospel means, they celebrate, I've been forgiven of my sin. Amen. That's part of the gospel. But that's not the entire gospel message. You see, the gospel message is not just you've been forgiven of your sins, so Romans 1.18 to 3.20, get rid of that. Because if you got rid of that, all that simply means is now that you're morally neutral, you've done nothing to offend God. Okay, but now we better keep on our toes because we have to abide by his law. See, what the gospel says is you are totally forgiven of your sins. You are declared righteous, innocent, 
but you are also made righteous. You are not just brought to a point of moral neutrality. You are brought to a point of absolute moral perfection because of what Jesus Christ did. That's what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5.21. That he, speaking of God, made him, speaking of Christ, to be sin, the great transfer, our sin to him, so that we could be in him the very righteousness of God. That's what it means to be declared righteous. You're now not just a sinner, but the very righteousness of God given to you. See, one's a, a legal designation, one's an ethical designation. I'm declared righteous, but I'm made righteous as well. Friends, this is why Christianity is so much radically different than just simply being moral or being good. In fact, can I say this? Seeking to be moral and seeking to be good may lead you in the exact opposite direction of what Christianity teaches. Do you know why? Morality by itself doesn't cultivate in us a virtue of righteousness that we need to be with God. If anything, it cultivates pride and division. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I was telling you I was reading a biography, an autobiography of Leo Tolstoy. And for those of you who don't know who this is, he was a, a novelist, a Russian novelist, late 19th, early, late 19th century, early 20th century. And, and he looks a little bit weird in this picture, but he's kind of like, a, I said he was like a Ron DeSantis mashed up with Bono, the singer from U2, mashed up with Elon Musk, okay? He was this brilliant guy. So listen to what he says. Now, he grew up, so I'm going to read a little bit from his autobiography. So this is what he says. The religious doctrine taught me from childhood. Now, he grew up in Russia before communism, so everyone kind of went to the Russian Orthodox Church. So he grew up in the Russian Orthodox Church. The religious doctrine taught me from childhood disappeared in me as in others when he became a teenager. But with this difference, that is, from the age of 15, I began to read philosophical works. My rejection of the doctrine became a conscious one at a very early age. From the time I was 16, I ceased to say my prayers, and I ceased to go to church or to fast of my own volition. I did not believe what had been taught me in childhood, but I believed in something. What it was I believed in, I could not have said at all. I believed in a God, or rather, I did not deny God, but I could not have said what sort of God. Neither did I deny Christ and his teaching, but what his teaching consisted in, again, I could not have said. Okay, so generally speaking, he sounds like most people you probably know who grew up in the church, right? They're not abandoning God entirely, but they just they actually don't even know who God is that they're abandoning, if they're honest. Listen to what he says, though. So he's abandoned kind of Christianity or the forms of it. Looking back on that time, I now see clearly that my faith, my only real faith, um, was a belief in perfecting myself and being good. But in what this perfecting consisted and what its object was, I could not have said. I tried to perfect myself mentally. I studied everything I could. Anything life threw at me, I studied it. I tried to perfect myself in my will. I drew up rules of conduct, and I tried to follow them. I tried to perfect myself physically, cultivating discipline and strength in all kinds of sports and exercise. I did all this, and I considered it to be the pursuit of perfection. The beginning of it all was, of course, moral perfection. But that was soon replaced by perfection in general. And he used the words perfection like just being a good person, like a, a, a specimen of being a human. By the desire to be better, not in my own eyes or those of God, 
but I desired to be better in the eyes of everyone else. And very soon, this effort again changed into a desire to be stronger than everyone else, to be superior to everyone else, to be thought of as better than everyone else. You see, his pursuit of morality didn't create in him the virtues that the gospel requires. It made him feel better than everyone else. Friends, if we're honest, the danger of being moral or being good is that we're really neither of them. We're moral, like Tolstoy. He was moral so he could feel superior to others. I'm better than you. I don't do those kinds of things. And remember, we learned from Romans chapter 2, we tend to adopt a morality where we can succeed by it while others fail. And, and this shows in all areas of our lives, like it shows in our politics, right? Whether you're a Democrat or, Repo Democrat or Republican. It shows even in our lifestyles, right? Like, you ever run into, like, health nuts? Oh, you're going to eat that cheeseburger. Hmm, I'll eat my kale salad. Hmm, or like, wh whatever, right? Or it, it even comes down to the environment. Oh, you still drive a gas guzzler. You must hate the earth, right? I mean, all these kinds of moralities. I know you guys, some of you have EVs. Don't, you know what I'm getting at. We create a morality that we can succeed by, and rather than that cultivating a genuine compassion for others, we tend to look down on others who don't fit our morality. That's what Tolstoy was doing, feeds pride. Or we have our morality, it's not a prideful thing, but it's a utilitarian thing. We believe just being moral gets us the things we want out of life. Remember I talked about my dentist, and he was saying he was a good moral person? I said, no, you're not. Because you are moral to other people, so they give things back to you. You're honest to them, they're honest to you. You're nice to them, you're nice, they're nice to you. You're not being moral because it's intrinsically right. You're being moral so life works out for you. Right? And that's when I said, don't argue with your dentist. He's going to put a, a, a needle in your mouth. So morality can create pride. Morality can just be utilitarian. And morality, being good moral people, sometimes we do it just to feel good about ourselves. So we shore up some insecurities. The point is this, friends. Morality can feed our pride and division more often than we're willing to admit. But faith, that Paul's talking about, faith, receiving God's mercy and forgiveness and blessings simply because he's good and I'm needy, that, that tends to level the playing field here. You mean it's not about what I'm doing and what you're not doing? It's not about how superior I am? We're all kind of in the same place? The realization, as Paul laid out for us in Romans 1 through 3, that I am so bad off that no amount of reform will do, that it's not just a matter of tweaking my self-improvement or any of those kinds of things, that we're actually in need of full-on rescue, that I am so bad that all I can do is raise my hand as wave after wave of my sin and filth engulf me, and I can only hope somebody will save me? Man, that's humbling. Growing up in the Hawaiian Islands, this actually when Lori and I were there, the first morning we went for a sunrise hike, we were at the Makapuhu Lighthouse, and there were men rappelling down the cliffs in helicopters because they had to rescue somebody in the surf. It was a common scene. All they can do as they are drowning under the water is raise their hand and hope for help. And you know, that to me is a good picture of the idea of faith. Because what is happening there is a transfer of trust. No longer is that man or woman trusting in their strength or their knowledge of the ocean or anything else to save them. 
they're transferring their trust to that person in the helicopter or the person on the sea dew or the person coming down the cliff, whoever they might be, they will have the necessary ability to save me. And they just stretch out their hand. Friends, that posture before God puts us all on an evil, uh, equal footing. And everyone is the same. See, faith gets rid of all the divisions and all the, the pride and puts us in the same place. What that means, friends, is that there is nobody in this room who is so good that you don't need God's grace received through faith. And it also means there is no one in this room that is so bad that they cannot receive God's grace through faith. So God's grace received through faith destroys both pride and fear. And the reason that's important is because most Christians... Their lives, their Christianity is either driven by pride or fear. I'm a good Christian because I do all the things that good Christians do. Well, what is that? Pride. Or I'm a bad Christian because I don't do all the things that Christians are supposed to do. Why would God love me? What's that? Fear. But you see, the gospel says it, it crushes your pride because it says you are more wicked than you've ever believed. We saw that for five weeks. And it crushes fear because it says but you are more loved than you've ever imagined. And so the only response that comes from that is just this absolute gratitude and overwhelming sense of how can he love me, but he does. And so grace received through faith crushes pride and fear and creates this, this desire to know him and to love him and this gratitude. And that's how it's always been, which is why Paul says in verse 31, that this principle of faith doesn't overthrow the law, and as a matter of fact, it upholds the law. This is what it's, how it's always been in the Old Testament. And to prove this, he's going to use two important figures from the Old Testament. Number one is Abraham, who came centuries before the law, and another one is King David, who came centuries after the law, and they're going to say the same thing, that faith is the central thing to our relationship with God. So look at chapter 4. And basically, verse 2, Paul is saying the same thing we just talked about now, right? But notice in verse 3, he almost quotes verbatim from Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, friends, the reason this is important is because the Scripture is saying that Abraham here was counted righteous hundreds of years before the law of God was even given to the people of God at, at Sinai in Exodus chapter 20. So this whole notion of living up to some standard to be considered acceptable or made righteous before God is seen as completely false right here. And on what ground is Abraham considered righteous? Verse 3, he believed God. And this belief was considered faith. And because Abraham had faith in God, Abraham was counted righteous. Now, because faith is so huge to what we're talking about, let me just tease this concept out a little bit more. Today, we tend to use the word faith very differently than the Bible uses the word faith. The way we use faith is kind of like this subjective, ethereal, personal value kind of thing, right? It's almost the, the Christian version of the Disney theological word, believe, right? You go to Disneyland, it's all about believe. It doesn't matter if it's rooted in reality or if it makes any sense. As long as you believe, your life will work out okay. It's like believe is a magical talisman. Just say the word enough times and things will work out all right. 
Friends, that couldn't be further from the understanding of biblical belief or biblical faith. You see, in that concept, it's a very squishy hope. Whether or not it actually is true is not the point. It's about how do you feel. But that is not biblical faith. The concept of biblical faith is one that is rooted in reality, in the very person of God, right? It is backed or grounded in history in the works of God. It is backed by experience in the lives of God's people, and it's directed to a person, Jesus Christ. So faith, if you want to write down a definition, I've said this before, faith is the conviction or skill to live your life in alignment with the promises of God's word. What that means, friends, is that's something you can grow in. Faith is the skill or conviction to live your life in alignment with the promises of God found in his word. That's what faith is. Even when your circumstances would have you trust otherwise, even when your friends would trust, have you trust otherwise, even when society will have you trust otherwise, you don't trust those things, you trust what God says. Now notice we're using the words trust and faith a little bit synonymously, but there is a distinction, right? Or trust and belief, or excuse me, faith and belief. Belief is just mental assent. I believe these things are true, but faith involves this personal trust, a leaning into something that belief may, may or may not have. In faith, you are trusting. You are believing in something enough to pour and lean into it. Faith is belief that leads to action. Abraham expressed that kind of faith in God, and he was counted righteous. Not because he obeyed the law. The law had not been given for 600 years. And yet, here was Abraham considered righteous, the founder of the people of God. He was a Jew's Jew, so to speak. So if the Jewish, the, the Jewish man was righteous apart from the law, then the law doesn't really matter. Our performance is not the issue. Second example he gives is King David, who lived centuries after the law was given. Now listen to what he says, starting in verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Here's what David says in Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. What? Think with me if you were here when we were studying Romans 1.18 to 3.20. You remember that, don't you? What Scripture said about you and me and humanity? We're heartless. We're faithless. We're ruthless. We don't seek after God. We don't do good. None of us, no one does these things. That was a huge indictment. And yet, what does God say in Psalm 103, verse 12? As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. No joke why David said, blessed is that man or woman. Happy, another way to translate it, happy is that individual. Because if what was said, and it's true, of Romans 1 through 3 is true about me and you, and it is. And yet Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west. Where does the east and west meet, friends? You know, it never does. That's how far God has separated all of that from you and I. Five times, actually six times in this chapter, this phrase, you can underline it, was counted 
as righteousness was counted. What that is is obviously it's a, it's a mathematical term. It's an accounting term. God's running the numbers, saying, look, if you're counting on your own, your own actions, your own ability, your own uh, insight, your own goodness, you're not going to add up. But if you're willing to trust and lean into my righteousness, my goodness, you'll have more than you need. It'll be counted to you as righteousness. And, and really, the, the rest of verses 9 through 12 is saying that this blessing is available to all, Jew and Gentile, does not matter. So then... That's the primacy of faith. It's always been that way. We see that evidenced in the Old Testament by the founder of the, the people of God and, and the king of the, who was representative of God. They're both saying our righteousness doesn't come from the law and our works. It comes from this relationship fueled by faith because of God's grace. Let's talk a little bit now. Well, then what does that structure of faith look like for us? Now, when I mean by, by saying the structure of faith it is, I'm trying to describe the faith that God counts as righteousness to us, and we see two elements of it in Abraham, uh, similar enough that we can learn from it, but unique enough that it's different in his situation than ours, but we want to look at them. And, and they, they are two things, the quality and the content of that faith. So let's look at the quality first. We're going to see that in verse 19. Now you see it, and I'll unpack some of the promises and what that means, but particularly in these four phrases... Number, uh, verse 19, Abraham did not weaken in faith. Verse 20, no distrust made him waver. He grew strong in his faith. And then verse 21, fully convinced that God was able. So what's going on here? Keep in mind, the promise of God that he gave to Abraham was that Abraham would be the father of many nations. Now, if you know the story from Genesis 15 and following, and actually verse 19 alludes to it, Abraham was 100 years old by the time he got this promise. Yet these four statements in Romans 4 speak to the quality of the faith that Abraham had in this way. Abraham's faith was not a squishy, fuzzy, feel-good kind of faith. It wasn't a closing of the eyes to the harsh realities of life that God's promises had to overcome. In fact... Abraham looked at himself, and I think Romans 4, it says, he considered himself almost dead. He knew the challenges that God's promise would have to overcome in his life to be made real. He was no fool. He says, okay, I'm going to be the father of many nations. I'm a hundred. My wife is 90, and we don't have kids. So if this is going to come to pass, you're going to have to do some really cool things here. Friends, biblical faith never ignores the hard realities of life in a broken world. It doesn't bury its head in the sand and just kind of hope that and believe things will work out. No, no, no. It's eyes wide open. This is what's happening. But if God is able to do this, it'll come to pass. Biblical faith has one variable unlike it any other variable that the world doesn't have, and the variable is this, that we believe in a God who is able to do what he says he can do. We see that in verse 21. I love what it says. Fully convinced that God was able. Now, here's the amazing thing, friends. If you know the narrative of Abraham, you know the story of Abraham, you're like, what in the world? Because Abraham was like, he kind of yeah, he weaved and he you know, zoomed and zagged, zigged and zagged, and it didn't seem like he was unwavering. The point is, isn't that 
I have faith, and I never doubt, and boom, this, I, mm-mm. Because if you read Abraham's story, he kind of, wa- for me, it looked like he wavered, but Scripture says he didn't. What's going on? It's the reality of the faith that God counts as righteousness is not some perfected faith of the saints that we might have imagined, but a real man or woman that says, look, I'm living in a hard situation, and though I might zig and zag, my course is set, and I'm always going to come back, come back to, set, to true north, and I'm always going to follow. Even though I fall down, I'm going to get back up, and I'm going to keep following. That was the kind of quality of Abraham's faith. It wasn't perfection, but it kept itself focused on God, fully convinced that he was able to do it. Even when sometimes in his life, it didn't seem like he believed it, he did. And I love the fact that when God recalls Abraham, he doesn't remember those things. He just said he never wavered. He grew strong in his faith. So that's the quality of the kind of faith. And then the content of faith. What was the content of faith? Look at uh, chapter 4, verse 13. Was that Abraham and his offspring would be heir of the world? This is a promise. In part, that was fulfilled when the gospel was made open to all people. And now every, individuals from every nation were now able to be brought into the people of God. Abraham effectively became the father of every nation. Because as Paul says in Romans 2.29 and 4.12, a Jew is one inwardly and is a matter of the heart. It wasn't about your ethnicity. It wasn't about the fact that you kept the identity markers of the, the nationality of Judaism. But it was one inwardly, a matter of the heart. And then look at verse 23 and following. This is where it, where it pivots to us. But... Um, Okay, go back to verse 22. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You see, friends, the ingathering of all the nations into kind of Abraham's family uh, the people of, faith in, uh, people of faith in God was just one step in God's ultimate plan to restore humanity and the creation and ultimately to defeat death. The defeat of death began in Jesus' resurrection is what Paul is saying. Jesus' resurrection and the promise that it holds for eternal life is the object of faith that we are called now precisely to believe in. And so just as the, the quality of Abraham's faith and the content of his faith was similar to ours, it does, it, it's developed, it's changed. The point is, Abraham didn't know all the details of God's redemptive plan, right? He didn't know a bunch of us Gentiles would be sitting here proclaiming, talking about his exercise of faith. He just knew God said, this is my promise to you. Will you believe it? And he says, I do. Even though everything in my life and circumstance tells me otherwise, I believe your word. More than that, I'm leaning into it. That's faith. It has changed a little bit because now our belief is not simply in the, 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 the nascent plan of God, but now we see the greater plan of God, that it includes not just every nation in the world, but the world itself, not just our temporal existence, but eternal life itself. And Paul is saying... It, Faith counted to Abraham as righteousness. It wasn't just for him, but it's for us as well. If we put our faith in the object of faith, Jesus' overcoming of death. That promise, that, that, that reality is the promise that all that's waiting for us if you're willing to exercise that kind of faith. 
since Paul says in verse 25 that our justification is tied into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me just share some thoughts as I conclude that have been rattling around in my head since um, good our Good Friday service about a month ago that I think relate to what it means to exercise faith alone today. When we're watching, when we're having our Good Friday service, it was the very end, we were sitting there and we were watching a video, had music from the Passion of the Christ, and the guy was painting this mural that turned out to be Jesus. You guys remember that? And I remember sitting there thinking, because I, like you, man, my faith can waver, can be all over the place. And I remember sitting there watching that, and this is what I thought. If what Jesus endured on the cross wasn't sufficient to bridge the gap between me and God, then nothing is going to be able to bridge the gap between me and God. No amount of my feeling bad, no amount of my good works can do it. Because if Jesus' good work could not accomplish it, then no amount of my good work is going to do it either. But, this is a logical syllogism. It's very true. If he couldn't do it, I certainly ain't going to be able to do it, no matter how fat, bad I feel about it or how good I try to live my life. If what he did didn't, wasn't enough, I'm doomed. But if Jesus' work on the cross was sufficient, and it was, nothing more is needed. You don't need to keep feeling bad about your sin and letting your failures beat you up constantly. You don't need to keep trying to convince God of how much you love him. You don't have to keep trying to do good works just to please him because Jesus did the good work. You can actually rest secure and serene knowing that Jesus did it all. The question, friends, is this. Not how you feel, but do you have faith in what God has done? Is your faith in what you're doing or is your faith in what Christ has already done? In other words, is your faith, about, is your faith rooted in your faithfulness or is your faith rooted in his faithfulness? But see, here's the thing. But here's the thing. Hear me. If you do believe that Jesus has reconciled you to God through his work on the cross on your behalf. If you do believe he has forgiven your sin and given you the very righteousness of God, then how can you not be gripped by him? How can you not be absolutely arrested and captivated by this man? How can you not, if you believe these things, not want to know him, not want to please him, not want to be like him, not because in the doing of any of these things you get more from him, but in the very doing of these things you get more of him. See, friends, that's the faith that is counted as righteousness because it's fully resting in God, not in yourself. That is the faith that remakes your life and changes you into the image of the one who is faithfulness itself. This is the brilliance of the gospel message, that our faith is rooted not in our own faithfulness, but in His. 
Let's pray. What can we say? I'm sure there's a hymn that says something like this, Lord, but what can we say when we contemplate the gospel? There, there is no sacrifice we could make. There is no praise we could continually give that captures it enough. And, and I suppose, Lord, that's a good thing, that's a good place to be. But also just knowing that it's unnecessary because it's all been done in Christ. Maybe that's why the New Testament constantly talks about being in Christ. Lord, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, make that true of every one of us in this room? That we wouldn't be in the flesh, we wouldn't be in the world, we wouldn't be anywhere but in Christ, celebrating, reveling, rejoicing in Christ, who knew no sin, but became sin, that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. Thank you. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.